okay, if you're a Pearl Jam fan, you've understood this notion that they're they're this great live band, that their their albums are a blueprint, you know, more than they are an official document. They're a blueprint of what this band can do. But if you really want to see it in all of its glory, you go out and you see it in person. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. It's Vitalogyology Part 6. For those who haven't been paying attention until now, we have been doing a series on Pearl Jam. Going through all the albums, discussing each different Pearl Jam era, and tracing the story of this band, this band that started out in the early 90s as the biggest young rock band in the world, and uh, just went through a period of enormous success in the early to mid-90s, and then they decided to take a different path. You know, it's weird to describe Pearl Jam as a, as a cult band because they still play arenas, but they are, in essence, a cult band. They're a band that has operated outside of the mainstream for much of its career. And the albums that we're going to be talking about today are at the core of that transition, talking about 2000's Benoral, and 2002's Riot Act, two polarizing records in the Pearl Jam canon, albums that I know there are people out there, serious Pearl Jam fanatics, who will argue that these are among the best albums that Pearl Jam ever made. And then there's many more people who are listening to this podcast having never even listened to those records because they bailed after Yield. You know, For them, Pearl Jam was just a 90s band, and by the dawn of the 21st century, they had given up on Pearl Jam and moved on. A lot of people moved on from Pearl Jam at this time. You know, These were the first two records to not go platinum for Pearl Jam. Riot Act barely went gold. Riot Act sold less, a lot less, than Versus did in its first week. You know, over the course of 10 years, that is what happened to Pearl Jam's following. You know, and by the way... Album sales may not matter much now, but like in 2000, 2001, 2002, there were still bands selling millions of records. You know, you know, online piracy had not totally wiped out album sales at that point. So for a band of Pearl Jam stature to not be selling that many records, that was a big deal. I think you can also say that when you listen to Benoral and Riot Act, that Pearl Jam was not a band interested in selling a lot of records at this time that they, in a way, purposely constructed records that were not going to be immediate, were not going to be likable. I would even argue that they obscured some really good songs with the production on some of these records. But before we get to that, before we get to delving into these two albums, we have to say hello to this week's sponsor, Harry's. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that Harry's, they're old friends of ours. And I'm a committed user of Harry's products because as you know or as you may not know if you if you look at a picture of me I've got a beard 
And a beard requires constant maintenance. You need to shave around the beard. You, you need to frame it so you look good. And you need good razors to do that. And, you know, I used to buy cheap razors all the time, you know, trying to keep up with all the fur coming out of my face. But then I started using Harry's. And not only is Harry's, they, not only do they have an inexpensive razor, but it's a high-quality razor. I'm talking about they're giving you, like, a weighted ergonomic razor handle. They're giving you blades with they have the five precision blades engineered by Germans inside of it. They're giving you the rich lathering shaving gel. They're giving you a travel blade cover. They're giving you all these things, making sure that you have a great shave and that you look fantastic. If you're not convinced and you want to try this product, well, I have a deal for Celebration Rock listeners. You could try a trial set for free from Harry's, and you're going to get all the things I just mentioned. You're going to get the handle. You're going to get the awesome blades. You're going to get the shave gel. You're going to get the travel blade cover. This is all stuff you'd have to pay for, like, you'd have to pay 13 bucks to get this stuff. But since you're a listener of this podcast, you're going to get it for free. So all you need to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock. That's harrys.com backslash rock, and you can get your free trial set. And not only that, it's a way to support this podcast. So look good for once in your life. Support a podcast. Everybody wins. That's Harry's. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock. So, Benoral and Riot Act. Uh, I'm going to call this episode Pearl Jam The Lost Years. <laughs> because I really think that this is sort of like a lost period for the band. In terms of just where they were at in their heads. And also in terms of popular perception. I mean, these are two records that people don't talk about very often. You know, we know about all the 90s records. But knowledge of Pearl Jam's discography, it drops off dramatically with Ben Oral. And, you know, in fairness to the world <laughs> here, uh, you know, while I think Ben Oral is an underrated record, and I think there's a lot of great songs on Ben Oral, Pearl Jam did not make it easy for people to like this record. And it starts with the production. You know, we've talked about how Brendan O'Brien was a crucial contributor to the classic Pearl Jam records, you know, versus Vitology, No Code. He is told to take a walk with this record. You know, Pearl Jam decides that they want to do something different. So they bring in this guy named Chad Blake. Now, Chad Blake is a guy, by the way, his first name is spelled T-Chad. So it's T-C-H-A-D. The T is silent. He's a guy that, you know... If you know his name, he often works with this other producer named Mitchell Froome. And they've produced records for like Los Lobos. Uh, they've worked on some Crowded House records. They're, they're, they're known for, you know, making sonically adventurous records. And, you know, there's, if there's one thing that's true about Pearl Jam, you know, for the most part, their records are fairly straightforward sonically. You know, the... You know, we've talked about Pearl Jam making sort of weird records. You know, we're, we're really talking about like weird records for Pearl Jam. Like, Vitology still is a pretty mainstream rock record. Even though the songs on that record are, you know, sort of recorded on the fly and, you know, there's some weird things going on in that record. For the most part, I mean, we're still talking about straightforward rock production. You know, that's what Brendan O'Brien brings to the table. He's very good at that. With Benoral, I guess what Pearl Jam was after, and I'm, I, and I'm, and I'm, not quite sure about this because I, I feel like this is a muddled record in a lot of ways. But it, it seems like what they wanted to do was, you know, they knew that they were this anthemic rock band. 
and they didn't want to sound quite so anthemic. So what they did was is that they put these sort of great rock songs behind a wall of sonic subterfuge. And when you listen to Binaural, it takes a lot of patience to sort of penetrate the cloud that is around a lot of the songs. The dense sort of web of different kind of sonic weird things going on in that record. Um, you know, another thing that Pearl Jam did this time, and this is a very, very Eddie Better move, but there were a lot of hooky, catchy pop songs that they wrote that did not end up on the record. Um, if you have that, uh, that compilation, Lost Dogs, a lot of the songs on that two-disc compilation are from this era. Uh, one of my favorite Pearl Jam outtakes, Sad, dates from the Binaural era. If Sad had been on Binaural, that could have been a radio hit for them. But Pearl Jam made the conscious decision not to include it on the record, and there's a reason for that, because they didn't want to make a radio-friendly record. In a way, I feel like this is sort of indicative of where Pearl Jam was at personally at the time, because, you know, we talk about Yield, the record before this, being, you know, coming out of a period of relative stability for Pearl Jam. Things had, again, turned kind of dark around the time of Binaural. Uh, you know, Eddie Vedder was having writing problems. He was, he was blocked. He had writer's block. Mike McCready, the great guitarist, was uh, in rehab at this time. So Pearl Jam was not uh, on its best legs. And yet, you know, we know, because Pearl Jam started re releasing voluminous bootlegs at this time, that Pearl Jam was a pretty great touring band at this time. And, and that thing that we talked about in the Yield episode, that transition from Pearl Jam being this band that makes big albums that dominate the culture to being a band, I guess akin to the Grateful Dead, a band that's going to tour a lot and exist outside of the mainstream and kind of make its bones in that way as a band that plays on the road live, doesn't play the same set list, you know, does a lot of adventurous things on the road. That that's when this personality for Pearl Jam started to take hold during this time. Um, you know, so they're touring a lot. Um, but of course, you know, the thing that, the most crucial thing that happened to Pearl Jam in the year 2000 occurred that summer when they played at a festival in Europe, the Roskilde Festival, and nine people ended up being crushed to death during a stage rush during a Pearl Jam show. An incident that is eerily similar to what happened to The Who in 1979 uh, when they played a concert in Cincinnati and there were a bunch of fans who died at that show. Based on what the band has said, and you know, they talk about this in the Pearl Jam 20 documentary, um, Pearl Jam could have very easily ended at that point. It seems as though you know, the, the weight of that tragedy was so profound on them and I think also coupled with where Pearl Jam was at you know because they weren't at their at their strongest in, in 2000 you know in terms of their career um, that it could have very well ended that they could have just packed it up you know maybe taken this horrible tragedy as an omen but they didn't do that you know and in a way you know I mean the, the circumstances here are much more tragic than they were in the mid 90s but you know if you look at where Pearl Jam was at around the Vitalogy No Code era, when there was a lot of confusion and dysfunction in the band. And they could have broken up at that time. 
they instead sort of channeled the exhaustion that they were feeling and the weariness and the alienation and they channeled they channeled that into no code i think no code is the exhausted record in pearl jam's discography um what they did in the early 2000s you know when they were going through another period of of you know sort of deep tor turmoil you know the kind of turmoil that can tear a band apart what they did was is that they channeled that into riot act and um you know there's a song on riot act called love boat captain which explicitly references the roskilde tragedy uh uh, you know, Eddie Vedder sings like "Lost Nine Friends Will Never Know" two years two years ago today, and you know, it, it, when they play that song live, he will update the number of years since the tragedy occurred. So I guess now would be 17 years if they play that song this year. Um, and right back to me, you know, this is I think, you know, the great underrated record in Pearl Jam's discography. This is the record I really like a lot. Like if I was going to sort of sermonize or proselytize for a, an underappreciated Pearl Jam record to be Riot Act. And I think I love this record in a similar way, you know, why I like No Code, in that there's an intimacy, there's an honesty, um, there's a power to how sort of vulnerable Pearl Jam sounds. You know, because Pearl Jam, I think, they have the side to them, this sort of He-Man side to them, this arena rock side that just sounds larger than life and impossible to penetrate and it's incredibly uh, poignant when they show another side to that the sort of vulnerable human side uh, it, it seems all the more sort of human because of the sort of he-man aspects of the Pearl Jam sound and you know I get into this when you know during our conversation about the record but you know for me when I listen to Riot Act it, it really makes me feel like this is like the national like this is like a proto record that the National made before the National was really a band. Like the National sort of started around this time. But this to me sounds like Pearl Jam's version of Boxer or something. You know, it's a very, it, for Pearl Jam especially, it's a muted record. Um, a lot of the songs are very moody. They're, 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 they're less about riffs and choruses than a vibe. And um, it's surprising to me how well Pearl Jam works in this mode. You know, when they say, you know, we're not going to write songs that are really riffy, you know, or that are sort of based on hooky choruses that, you know, the this, this sort of Pearl Jam formula, the thing that they're so great at. On Riot Act, what they do is they sort of invert all that. And they say, you know, we're not going to do that. Uh, because in a way we're wounded, you know, and we're going to show you how wounded we are. You know, and there's obviously the political content of that record as well. You know, there's a song Bush Leaguer, which was, you know, the big anti-Bush song. And, you know, the tour at this time that they did in 03 was, you know, it's sort of known as like a politically sort of uh, provocative tour. There were, there were people in the audience that didn't like Bush Leaguer, you know, that would boo Eddie Better for coming out in a George W. Bush mask and, uh, you know, sort of provoking the audience in that way. But, you know, for me, ultimately, you know, what makes Riot Act stand out, and Benoral too, is, you know, the... It really does show another side of Pearl Jam. Um, a band that is sort of in the process of figuring things out. You know, how are we going to move on from the 90s? What are we going to look like moving forward? That, to me, is what this era is about. And 
Um, if you're a fan of the band, if you love those 90s records, I really think that there's a value in exploring this side of the band. Because in a way, it illustrates how powerful those 90s records are. When you can hear sort of the underbelly of those albums. <laughs> Which I think that, I think that's what these records are. Um, so, let's get into our discussion here. My, uh, my guest in this episode is Jessica Lechman. She might be the biggest Pearl Jam fan that I have in this series. Uh, she has seen Pearl Jam over 150 times. <laughs> she founded a, uh, a popular fanzine called Two, F- Two Feet Thick. Um, you know, she's been writing about Pearl Jam uh, for like 20 years. She's an expert on the band. But I like talking to her because she has enough perspective on Pearl Jam to also talk about their foibles and their and their shortcomings. You know, sometimes when you talk to super fans, they're so blinded by their love that they can't admit anything that the band ever did wrong or have a sense of humor about the band. Um, I think Jessica uh, has a great balance of just being a super obsessive fan, but also having some critical distance. So it was great talking to her. She had a lot of interest, interesting things to say about Pearl Jam at this time, the albums, as well as sort of their touring life at this time and the transition that they were making in that regard. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jessica Leckman. So Jessica, I, um, I'm, I'm excited to have you on because you know the, the, we've done five episodes before now focusing on all the 90s albums. And I think mm-hmm. when people talk about Pearl Jam, that's, those are the albums that people think about. They think about 10 versus Vitology, No Code, albums like that. And we're now in an era, you know, talking about the early 2000s, where I think a lot of Pearl Jam fans, a lot, at least a lot of the sort of mainstream fans, started dropping off. And these albums, talk about Benoral and Riot Act, are a little underheard and underappreciated. And I know this is true even for me. I was a huge Pearl Jam fan in the 90s, and this is where I dropped off, and I didn't really get into these albums until about five years ago. And it was really through the bootlegs that were released at that time. Um, listening to a lot of the concert recordings, even more so than the albums, where I came to love a lot of the songs that Pearl Jam was doing in this era. Um, I'm wondering, like, for you, I mean, which, by the way, let's talk briefly just about, like, I, I know you're a huge Pearl Jam fan. But yeah. <laughs> let's try to, you know, you, you founded the fan site, Two Feet Thick. Yeah. Let's try to quantify this a little bit. I mean, I mean, you've seen them. Is it like a hundred times or something? One hundred and fifty-nine. One hundred and fifty-nine times. Incredible amount of time. Like, when was the first time you saw them? So, I mean, much like sort of any other teenager at the time, um, Pearl Jam was on the bill of Lollapalooza '92, and I was, you know, in high school, and I had missed the first year. And we bought tickets before any anybody was announced. It wasn't the point wasn't who's playing, but it was like this is the show you have to go to. Yeah. And actually, at that time, I was a, a fairly big Soundgarden fan. Like that was like the, you know, Seattle was the cool thing, of course. But like my flavor of that um, was Soundgarden, who was a little bit more established and that kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, cool. We'll see the Chili Peppers. We'll see Soundgarden. It'll be fun. I obviously was like aware of who Pearl Jam was by that time. Like. Um, Alive was a big hit. It was like you couldn't escape it on the radio and stuff like that. But, like, I think that, you know, it was an interesting moment because unless you were paying deep attention to Pearl Jam specifically, 
you didn't know all the facets that that band was at the time and that they were about to be. Um, and I don't really think that they showed how multifaceted they were to like the general public until the Jeremy video, which was around the same time of Lollapalooza. So like, I just kind of felt whatever about Pearl Jam at the time. I was like, okay, they're fine, whatever. But then I saw them live. And, you know, because we got there early, we had terrible seats, of course, and (laughs) it was such a magnetic experience that I was like immediately like, all right, I got to get a copy of 10 specifically. My friend had it, you know, like whatever. But I was like, okay, I'm going to like study this album. Is there any, you know, live recordings anywhere? There was like one radio show that, you know, that the local radio station had kept rebroadcasting. Like, all right, somebody has a tape of it. And, you know, I just like dove in feet first. And it was like, I think the same week that, you know, like around the same time that the Jeremy video went into heavy rotation. I was like, all right, there's like 27 other layers to these guys. Like, there's some look in Eddie Vedder's eye that means that there is just so much more that we need to get into here. And that was that was the beginning for me. Like, I just went down the rabbit hole and never came back out. And, I mean, were you a person that, like, were you seeing them multiple times? Like, on, I mean, you must have been seeing them multiple times on tours. I mean, I mean, like those 157 shows or 159 shows, is that, like, pretty evenly spaced throughout the career? Or, like, were you seeing them a lot during different eras of the band? So, at first, just... Probably also like any other fan, even though I was, you know, even even though I was sort of in the music business almost as soon as I went to college, which was in 93, um, I interned at Spin, you know, like almost the second I got there. But like, just like anybody else, like number one, Pearl Jam didn't play a, a, a huge ton of shows after 92. Right. Like they did a ton for 10 when everybody was sort of discovering them and like, you know, you may catch one, but by the time you were like, oh, okay, like, what's next? There wasn't a super ton. Even the Versus Tour wasn't that many shows. And, you know, and then Ticketmaster situation happened. So, right. like, they weren't, they weren't playing that often. They didn't play much in 94 at all after the Versus Tour was already, you know, underway. And they happened to not be scheduled to play. I was a New Yorker, you know, at the time, and they happened to not be scheduled to play in New York. So, you know, at the last minute, to be honest, <laughs> I figured out that they were going to be in my hometown during spring break, and I finagled a um, a plane ticket and somehow got into that show. I still don't know how. Um, <laughs> you know, and that was you know that was a Regal show in '94, three thirteen '94, which was a fan club only show. Um, and you know, like I, I still don't, I still don't know how we like ended up like convincing somebody to give us tickets, but like. It was a life-changing show. I was like, I walked out of there. I'm like, all right, I got to, now I'm going to join the fan club and, you know, the whole nine yards. I was like, all right, how can I always be in a business so that I can, you know, be reporting on this band? Right. Um, So, but, you know, like after the, you know, after they went back to sort of massive tours, then I, you know, got to see them a lot more. So, like, I saw them once in 92, not at all in 93, twice in 92, uh, 94. 95, I saw them about three times because they played Soldier Field and uh, Milwaukee. Yeah. Um, and then in 96, you know, which was a, it was a modified tour that was, you know, sort of before the, the Ticketmaster thing was over. Um, but they did play in the Northeast quite a, you know, quite a bit. So I managed to make it to four shows of that, which was like a Herculean effort, let's be honest. It was like 800 <laughs> numbers and, you know, like going to weird venues. Um, a crum- in, in, in the case of New York, it was a crumbling soccer stadium in a, like a weird island between Manhattan and the Bronx, which is like a place that 
generally speaking, you never went to if you were a normal person. <laughs> um, you know, and you're standing in a field. It was, it, you know, it was fun. It was just um, a totally different experience than it was later. And then, you know, I know this is a long-winded answer, but when in 98, by the time it was 98, obviously, I, you know, I was... I was in my early 20s, I was out of college, and now they announced, I believe that was initially announced to be 47 days, Yeah. Um, and my head exploded because never in my life as a fan, <laughs> you know, like after, you know, like I got, I became a fan during 10, but like sort of at the end of the 10 tour, basically. Right. So like in my entire life as a fan, there had never been like a million shows to choose from, let alone like you know, I actually had a job and <laughs> a paycheck and I should have been spending things on rent and stuff like that. But, you know, concert tickets are pretty important. I don't know. So right. 98 is when I like went off the deep end. Right. So, uh, you know, I think 98, I went to like, mm, it was four, it was 14 shows. I yeah. went to 14 shows in 98 and any other tour was never more than four. Well, and that whole kind of like what you're talking about, like their tour schedules in the nineties, I think that's a very important point to make, especially for people that maybe like Pearl Jam now and was, you know, they were too young to maybe see them back then is that they were a hard band to see as, you know, as huge as they were, you know, cause I was the same way. I loved Pearl Jam in the early nineties, but I didn't get to see them at all until that 98 tour, like when they were touring behind yield. And that's when, yeah. they were, and that's when they started doing Ticketmaster venues again. Um, because like you said, you know, there was that period in the mid nineties when they were doing, you know, these tours, they were trying to do non-Ticketmaster venues, so they ended up playing a lot of sort of fly-by-night venues or out-of-the-way places, and people often talk about how that turned people off, like, because they were, they were at their peak and they should have, they could have been really cashing in and touring, but it was hard to see them at that time. I, I mean, I agree, and like, you know, it, I do think, ironically, it had something to do with how they were able to, um, hold on through the crazy times and, and have longevity. Like, right. you know, I do think that it kind of inadvertently helped sort of manage how crazy things were at that time. I mean, they were the, the biggest musical act on the planet in 1995. Like they absolutely were. Um, and yet, you know, I think there, you know, like that summer tour got scrapped, you know, after a few shows, you know, like it, the infamous, um, show in San Francisco and then they like put it back on in the in the in the fall and like there was only a few dates and it was super hard to get those tickets and you know but I do think that ultimately as much as like craziness was swirling around them they didn't have as much you know of the mental wear and tear that goes into like being a touring unit you know mm -hmm. like there's you know a different city every day and you know hotel rooms and fans like you know whatever stalking you you know, I think, you know, Eddie talks about that in Pearl Jam 20, you know, how at that time, like, you know, the whole story of Lucan, there's like somebody like stalking him and whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I do think it weirdly sort of helped them to not be, you know, around as much. Obviously, they were, you know, definitely a musical unit. They were making amazing albums and all that other stuff. And they were they were consistently playing live. They just want these big, long tours that used to be how you did things, you know, like that was in the era of the two, you know, one or two year album cycle. And then you tour for X number of months and, you know, they just did it differently. I think it was smart for them, but I, but I also agree. I mean, I agree that like some people just were kind of like, okay, this is, 
the barrier of entry to see this band live is a little a little too much. Yeah. Um, well, and you had really, you really had to be devoted, and you clearly were a devoted fan. You know, you're willing to take road trips to go see them. You're gonna you know do what you can to finagle a ticket. You know to get into that fan club show that was a life changing show for you. I mean, I, I think you bring up a good point here about how just the hugeness of that band. I mean, I think one thing that's maybe hard for some people to remember or appreciate that Pearl Jam was a pop band in a sense. I mean, they, you don't sell that many records if you're not appealing to like little kids, you know, like they were on MTV, they were on the radio. And I think that there, there was an element maybe that if they had continued to make videos and play huge tours, that not only would they have been worn out, that maybe they would have been overexposed in a way where you get so fixed in a certain time and it makes it hard to move forward. I mean, it, it does seem like in a way, I don't know how much how intentional that was, but it did seem to maybe do right by them moving forward to maybe pull back a little bit. Yeah, and I, I, I actually am of the belief, you know, just having been like, you know, I was in college in the mid-90s, and I was, you know, like on the white knuckle, sort of like waiting to see what they were going <laughs> to do next thing, just like every other fan was. Um, but, you know, I think that, it was self. It, it turned into self-preservation. Not just that, like, oh, did they get worn out, or you know, and certainly, you know, did they get, you know, the overexposure thing is definitely true, also. But like, I think that kept the band together. To be honest with you, I yeah. think that's why they still exist. Right. Yeah, I want to talk to you about sort of the psychology of a super fan. You know, the <laughs> the person that's going to go to like 150 plus shows because you know, kind of getting back to this early 2000s period, it does seem like there was a shift in focus for the band where, you know, the 90s were about the about Pearl Jam being this huge mainstream arena rock band, videos in, on MTV, you know, putting out successful singles. And it, it does seem like in the early 2000s that there was a shift toward making records that were not as overtly commercial and also touring in a way where, you know, Pearl Jam is not a jam band but they get compared to the Grateful Dead in the sense that they have this committed following that will follow them from show to show. And certainly with the release of the bootlegs, you know, the 70-some bootlegs, there did seem to be more of an acknowledgement that Pearl Jam had that kind of following. And where they're not, I, I think they're too big to be called a, like, a, like a niche band, but they did seem to take on a different character where it was more of that kind of jam band model where you have an audience that loves you and supports you and is going to follow you no matter what you do. And there did seem to be maybe more of a shift to focusing I, on those people. Is that, is that fair to say? Would you, would you say? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, it, you know, the looking at any band, there's an interesting, you know, dual nature to like what a band does. Number one, there is all the recorded stuff that you do. Like you, you put out albums, you put out singles, like that it, people can listen to at any time. That's one version of what you do and what one version of fandom the other half the other part of the picture is what you do on stage how often are you out there performing these songs or you know like in the public eye like literally with an audience and i think that in in the mid 90s what pearl jam um saw is you know we feel comfortable on stage to a certain extent um and our album's are the are the thing that is overexposing us. So I, you know, like I think it's also interesting if you go back to the very early days. There are some 
writers out there who were, had like such an astute eye, even so early, like 91 or something, there was an LA Times review of a, like a super early show. I think even before that first Chili Peppers, where they opened for the Chili Peppers in the fall of 91, I think it, the show was like before that. And the writer picked up on the fact that like this has the makings of a great live band. I think at some point they sort of realized like they could harness a certain magic on stage and, 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 you know, they focused on that. I think it's certainly not that they weren't, um, that they weren't doing amazing things in their albums. They certainly were, but I think that they, that gave them a, a freedom with their albums to, you know, sort of do what they wanted to do rather than like, okay, now I'm going to write, you know, Jeremy too, you know, like right. now, now, you know, how much do I have to care about, um, about, you know, like, what people expect from a Pearl Jam album that stopped being a thing. Honestly, that stopped being a thing with no code, which is you right. know, in, in the mid nineties, but then they came back with yield, which, you know, was, I think a lot of, if you look back and I even remember at the time, there was a lot of sentiment that like, okay, this is like a good meaty sort of rock record. It's less esoteric than, than no code. And Oh, now there's a tour. So there was this, there's this weird moment in 98 where like, there's this big, you know, popular album, not as popular as versus or, or Ken certainly, but like more in that vein, I guess, in the, like, you know, to casual fans and they're touring. So like, what you know what's going to happen from here on out well a lot of people stop paying attention to albums in general like yeah. that happened with the rise of mp3s which happened around that time by the way Pearl Jam was one of the first um people to have like a like a you know like a bootleg problem i guess with <laughs> with streaming i remember giving the fly leak um before it was supposed to which was in 90 at the end of 97 but um you know there was this moment when it was just like okay if you're a Pearl Jam fan you're You've, you've understood this notion that they're, they're this great live band and that their music, to me, that their, their albums are a blueprint, you know, more than they are an official document. They're a blueprint of what this band can do. But if you really want to see it in all of its glory, you go out and you see it in person. And right. 98 is the moment when there was enough shows that people who weren't, um, you know, super fans could probably catch a show right. and like it wasn't that it wasn't that difficult it was like okay there's a show near me and it's affordable and you know it's not a pain to get a ticket so by the time you get to 2000 um you know you've got a couple of things going on you've got a, a, a you've got a couple of like sort of more esoteric albums under under their belt binaural which is a, such a fascinating and, and like interesting and multi-layered album um, and you have no code back a few years before that. Obviously, yield had come and gone. That's a whole other story. But like, this is now the 2000s. People have a thing in their mind that like, okay, we're in Y2K and it's not the 90s anymore. And like, we're gonna, you know, it, it was a different era. And I feel like the year 2000 is when everybody's like, okay, this is this band is a live band. Right. Like that. That is when the mantle came because now it was the second massive tour. And people had discovered, like, no two shows are alike, which is not something that most people knew before 98. And now you're on, this, on the second rung of it. And unfortunately, um, 2000, the shows in 2000, there were 72 shows, and they were incredibly intense. Right. They were more, they were more intense than a program show had been in years. And 
you know, there was a lot going on for the band. I mean, I think the most notable and public and most appropriate to talk about thing is Rough Kilda, which happens right in the middle of that tour. Right. Um, and, and, listen, and can you just talk about that? I mean, that was the, the concert. Was that in Denmark? Yeah. So at the so program put out Binaural in the spring of 2000. And then they immediately went on tour, first to Europe and then to the U.S. So the European tour started at the end of May. And, you know, it's fine. I went to a few of those shows, actually. It was my first European tour. I shaved up for two years to, <laughs> to be able to afford to go to a few European shows. And those are nuts. You know, like, it's a whole different energy than the U.S. Um, and at the end of that tour, they were playing a festival in Denmark, the Rush Gilda Festival, uh, at the end of June, towards the end of the tour, actually. And there was some bad weather and other things. And, you know, unfortunately, nine fans lost their lives in that crowd. Yeah. Now, obviously, not having anything to do with what Pearl Jam was doing or anything like that, there was just weird conditions on that field, and that's been written about and talked about a lot. But I, you know, I definitely—I mean, I can't even imagine to this day what it must have been like for the band to see their fans being killed. Well, and there's that, you know, like, and there's that weird parallel with Eddie Vedder being such a huge fan of the Who, and the Who had a very similar tragedy uh, in their own history in 1979 in Cincinnati, where, where fans were, were, were trampled before a show. So that's another kind of weird parallel between Pearl Jam and the Who. What, it is. It is. it is. And, and you know, Pete Townsend called up Eddie right after Rush Kilda happened. They had, you know, had kind of a mentor-menteeship, you know, like they yeah. were a friendship based on you know, the the elder and the younger. Um, and he called them up immediately to help talk, you know, particularly Eddie through that time. I think he was instrumental in helping them get their head around it. But um, so if you listen to the, the U.S. bootlegs from that fall tour, or if you were at any of those shows, the intensity is ferocious. Um, at the time, uh, I actually had a print Pearl Jam zine. I, people don't remember what zines are, but they were basically magazines that you made yourself on a copy machine. Yeah. Um, and I had this quarterly thing that I'd been doing since 95. And, you know, I've done all kinds of different things. I had interviews and other cool stuff and whatever. But that year, after Russ Kilda happened, and I heard that, that the bootlegs were going to happen, I was like, the only best way to chronicle this tour is to transcribe every lyric change and every piece of stage banter, because it was also an election year. So there's this crazy election going on, um, and that was the year of, you know, like the, where Gore lost Florida by like 300 hanging chads or whatever in Florida. <laughs> right. um, you know, and, and Eddie was something for Ralph Nader, actually, at the time. <laughs> and you have like this major tragedy where Eddie is, you know, he was devastated. I, I can't read his mind. I'm not his friend or whatever, but like the things he said on stage, the lyrics that were changed were so like intense and emotional and, you know, talking about, you know, getting through tough times and, you know, talking about, you know, the fact that people died and the fact that Alive was specifically omitted for that entire tour. Like they couldn't, they didn't play that song, which was mm. a staple, obviously, for the entire tour. Yeah. And I remember the moment I actually went to go, like, that show was intense for me as well. I had been in Europe. I knew lots of people uh, who were at Ross Gilda and that stuff. And so the U.S. tour is really intense anyway, because this band was still, you know, still, still there. They didn't give up, you know. And so I went to the last show uh, of the tour in Seattle that November. And at the very last show, 
they played alive for the first time since the tragedy. Mm. And, um, you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Right. I think that there were, and like, there was a, you know, I, I believe there was a, a couple of things said about, you know, like what had happened and, you know, it, it was, it was intense. So by the time the actual bootlegs came out, then, oh my God, everybody can, you know, sort of enjoy what Pearl Jam is. Um, and they, and they happen to have a document of a really important time in their career, like a real turning point and a real, you know, make lemons out of lemonade, <laughs> make lemonade out of lemons kind of time. Yeah. I mean, um, well, it, it, I mean, it is a fascinating era and I, I just wanted to bring it back to binaural for, for a minute. I mean, you, you were talking yeah. earlier about how it is a really fascinating record and, and it is a record that again, like. I think for a long time this was a record I didn't really pay attention to and I came back to it because I think it is a very interesting record. I, you know, I mean, from what, like when you read about the making of it, it sounds like it was kind of a difficult record to make. I know Eddie Vedder was going through writer's block at the time and Mike McCready went into rehab during the making of the record. Um, this was the first Pearl Jam album not to go platinum. As you alluded to earlier, you know, it was a new decade. And I think there was a sense with a lot of people that Pearl Jam was a 90s band and that they mm -hmm. weren't necessarily going to make it in the new decade. Um, I mean, how, I mean, and this has been talked about before, but like how close do you think Pearl Jam came to not existing at this time? I mean, do you think um, do you think that was ever a real possibility? I mean, because they, they there was a real resolve, obviously, in this era to keep touring, and there's like you said, there was excellent shows that they were playing, but did it ever come close to to them calling it a day? You think? Absolutely, and but not because of like oh, you know, are people considering us a '90s band, or oh, you know, what do they think of our albums, or what do they think of our shows? The the, the reason that they almost came close to breaking up um, was because of Ross Kilda. You're right. Um, you know, there was a moment that summer where, like, all bets were off. Um, I think that was pretty well documented in Pearl Jam 20 and, right. and other places. Um, you know, the accompanying book, which, you know, uh, an awesome guy named uh, Jonathan Cullen, who's also been, you know, a good friend of mine and a, a long time, you know, Pearl Jam scholar also um, really delved into it. Uh, I think there, but he, you know, like, you know, that's the moment when you question, like, what is this all about? Um, and so, you know, it becomes really a stark line in the sand when they get back on that stage on August 3rd, after, you know, about a month after that tragedy, after they make that decision that we're going to keep going. And those, those binaural songs, like, you know, even though they were written before any of this stuff, they take on like such more, you know, significance. Right. You know, like parting ways and like, right. like, oh my God. I mean, you know, besides the fact, again, like I mentioned, it was also a, um, a, a, an election year. And you have songs on that album that speak to that so, you know, sort of scathingly like grievance, um, you know, and, uh, you know, to my mind, you know, Soon Forget, which talks about, like, billionaires and their towers and losing sight of humanity, you know, right. insignificance, you know, like, these are, these are um, things that are, these are songs that are really interestingly um, amplified by the times that Pearl Jam found them in at the time, and, I, and I, they channeled it on stage, you know, right. like, they got that opportunity, but... 
Well, nothing as it seems too. I think that song, nothing as it seems, just being like a total like exorcism for Mike McCready, like on those bootlegs from the. You know, I think of like uh, that show they play in Seattle, which I think was the last show of that tour, which Mm -hmm. they play nothing as it seems. Like I think of that version and just his soloing on that. You know, it would just be incredible. I mean, I don't know. Like, like I said, for me, my entry point into this album uh, was hearing the live versions uh, because the record, I think. You know, they were working with, 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 with Chad Blake, mm-hmm. and then also I think Brendan O'Brien worked on it too. It's a very, I mean, you could hear them trying to do different things, kind of, I guess, going back to that kind of no-code mode where it's not just about big rock songs. There's a lot of kind of interesting production. I mean, it, it's a very kind of internal record. It, to me, it's very dense and kind of hard to penetrate in a way, which makes it interesting kind of over time. But, like, when you hear it for the first time or the first three or four or five times, it can be hard. It's not very accessible. Like, what are your feelings on that record? I guess, like, as an album, like, you know, yeah, like make your I case mean, for that album because it's sort of underappreciated. I, I actually, um, I actually agree that it's 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 not overtly friendly. Like, it doesn't just like run up and jump on you and you lick your face. Um, <laughs> right. But if you sit down with it for a minute. Um, it unfolds and it keeps unfolding. I, it's one of those records that doesn't expire, which is important to me because it's it, like that's kind of how I think of Belgium. Anyway, like this music is still gratifying. You know, we're talking about an album that came out essentially 17 years ago. Um, and when I think of any one of those songs, I think of like all of the layers in them and all the things that I continue to discover, all the things that like you can hear in that music. Of the Girl, which is a very underappreciated song, like an, a deep album cut that most people never talk about. Right. Um, if you listen to the album version of that song, there's like three or four different layers of what's going on in that room. There's like, you can hear the room, which is really weird. And it kind of takes you on this middle of the night journey into, who knows, into the, the center of someone's head. And you can hear that in just sort of the atmosphere of the album. Um, the other thing that... I mean, like, I remember at the time I was holding my breath for this album, um, even though I knew, like, the era had changed a little bit, and that's not as much to do with Pearl Jam as with, by 2000, a lot of people were getting their music on Napster and other stuff like that. Like, that was the beginning of the, we're, you know, like, people not selling as many albums. Right. In general, everyone. Um, and, and that was also the ascendancy of, like, bubblegum pop. That was, like, you know... Britney Spears and NSYNC and all that other stuff was like the number one stuff of the time. Um, not that rock wasn't important, but it wasn't the pinnacle of pop culture at the moment. So it's not that surprising to me um, that it is perceived as not as, you know, sort of hot or whatever as previous albums. But I was, I remember as a fan, as somebody who liked Pearl Jam and deeply cares about like what music they're putting out, I was holding my breath for that album because it's also an important moment because it's Matt Cameron's first album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we all, you know, anybody who caught them in 98 um, on the U.S. tour got to witness like his like power, you know, live. But those weren't his songs yet. And now you get to binaural. And these are like him as, an, you know, he was, he helped make that album. He, you know, it, he's a full-fledged member of Pearl Jam. He's now, you know, you know, a fully functioning one-fifth of the band. Right. And this is the first document of Pearl Jam as a unit with, with Matt Cameron behind the kit. And it's, 
you know, amazing. I mean, like, you know, he starts contributing immediately. Um, you know, and there's a lot of writing by a lot of different guys on that album, too, which I think is, I always would, you know, prefer. You know, I think, like, I like hearing the different, um, the different sort of songwriting voices that people have. You know, like Jeff wrote God's, God's Dice, and I believe Stone wrote Thin Air. Nothing as it seems with Jeff. I think Jeff even wrote the lyrics to that. You right. know, like, um, you know, it, there's just something from everyone. So, but the Matt Cameron part of it, I, I think, doesn't get talked about very much. Like, oh my God. And then they took it on the road. So now you have a band that just put, that has an entire album, a document of something that now they can go into their, you know, most powerful place, which is on stage. And they can, you know, like, these five guys made this music. And they can, you know, launch it into the stratosphere from there. Like hearing, I just, I always looked forward to Insignificance on that tour. Every show that I saw, I was like, bring on Insignificance, (laughs) bring on Grievance. Like I just, they did great things with that album on tour also. Yeah. Um, I I think another thing that's that's interesting about that record too is like when you, uh, there's that B-side and outtakes collection called Lost Dogs that yeah. came out a little bit after that and that's very binaural heavy and you can hear that they intentionally left off songs that I think would have been more of like the jump on top of you and uh, I mean th- th- there did seem to be a deliberate decision to, like, to leave off a song like Sad for instance which yeah. seems like a much more immediate song than a lot of what's on there but they were consciously not trying to have that kind of record at that time it seems like yeah, and I think that there's a lost art to um, sequencing and song selection. That I mean, I don't. I'm not inside of like people's heads or anything like that. And you know, I don't know as much about any other band. As I, I mean, obviously Pearl Jam, I know the most about <laughs> any band I know anything <laughs> about. Um, but I know that they just so very much care exactly what songs, how they fit together, what order they're going in, what story do they tell. Like, it's something that they spend a lot of time paying attention to, so that an album isn't just a collection of songs. It actually is a picture that they're trying to paint. Um, And I don't know how much other bands do that. Right. So, you know, I remember when those, there's three songs, I think, um, that were left off a binaural that ended up on Lost Dogs. And I remember... You know, when I finally heard the education of another one of those songs, um, I remember when I uh, heard those three songs, those songs sound like the beginning of a totally different album. Right. Like the, all the, the, you know, like the, the upside down version of, of binaural, like an, another world in an alternate universe. This is what <laughs> binaural would be. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that's interesting because they clearly saw that those three songs hung together in a totally different way. Um, I actually would be curious if there was some way that they could go back and like make the other binaural just to see what it would be. But like, I, it's clear to me that you know they were choosing a theme. Right, right. You know, we're, we're we're rapidly running out of time, and I want to make sure we talk about Riot Act as well because you know Riot Act comes out in two thousand two, and to me, this is the most underrated Pearl Jam album. Like at the time, it was the worst selling Pearl Jam album up to that point. Um, you know they like you know they were still touring a lot and you know doing a great business that way and 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 obviously connecting with fans but in terms of their public profile arguably was at the lowest ebb at this point and yet when i go back to listen to this record it's actually like one of, I, I think it's the best record that they've put out in the 21st century for me personally 
I think it really holds up. I mean, there's a lot of like curveballs on this record, um, but I think the production is really interesting. I mean, you have great songs like Green Disease, You Are, I Am Me, I Am Mine, Love Boat Captain, Save You. Um, I don't. What, what do you like? What are your feelings on this record? I, I really think it's like the most underrated Pearl Jam album. I actually think so too. Um, and I don't know if I think it was like, like you know, where it sits in the pantheon of, like, how much people were paying attention. But I do remember that, like, 2002 was not uh, a Pearl Jam in the public consciousness year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not really. You know, it just wasn't, like, there. it wasn't, like, a top-of-mind thing for most people. Now, obviously, I was always paying attention. But um, interestingly enough, I started that year, um, I happened to be in L.A., uh, at the beginning of the year when, when Eddie played a random one-off solo show um, at the Wiltern with Beck and Mike Ness from, Sonic, uh, from Social Distortion. And he played a bunch of new songs, some of which we would later hear on ukulele songs and on, you know what I mean, like in, in, in you know, much, much later. But he debuted those songs at the beginning of the year. And one of those songs was Can't Keep, you know. So... And that is such a dark song. It is incredibly dark. It is questioning life itself. And Pearl Jam had long been out of that mode of like that sort of dire questioning life mode. And so like I thought that was such a really interesting moment that that actually ended up on this, on this album reimagined as a Pearl Jam song. Like as if it was like Eddie reached out to his bandmates and were like, nope, this isn't this isn't just mine. Like I need you all, you know, I need you all here. Um, I, I love this album. I think that it's, you know, speaks of like the confusion and disappointment and things of like, you know, let's face it. It's the first nine post nine 11 album. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first um, uh, George W. Bush era album, which it's, you know, we know how they feel uh, about who won that election, um, you know, and, and it's written all over this record. And I mean, when, when you talk about Crop Duster, I don't I mean, like, I don't know how much people remember. But at the time, when at, right after 9-11, when everybody was freaking out about, you know, what's going to happen next or whatever, there's people worried about Crop Dusters, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just like, <laughs> right. and then and the program comes out with a song about that, you know, Bush Leaguer, which is like. A very obvious takedown <laughs> of the president, um, you know, and even getting back into personal things. Arc uh, was the very first song that Eddie wrote after the Roskilde tragedy, which is just his grief. Um, and I've been told that if you listen, there's like nine segments of it, and each one of those each segment represents one of the people who died. Mm. So, like, you know, and he was saying this, you know, in tribs and drabs, you know, here and there. And if you didn't cobble that all together you wouldn't necessarily know but i think that when you listen to this album you get this sense of like anxiety the sense of you know angst and the sense of like wondering like what is this new century like what what is this you know um and i think that that's powerful it's extremely powerful Well, and you know there's something about that record too that is very restrained and sort of a non- Pearl Jam sort of way. I mean, I think when people think about Pearl Jam, they think about the big anthems and the big, you know, songs from 10 and, and, and that kind of mode. And, you know, I think that they're great in that mode. And I I tend to prefer maybe them in that mode. And sometimes they're not as good 
in sort of the kind of like we're going to pare it down and be sort of like a small sounding band. It's like they can't help not sounding huge. But on this record, <laughs> they, I almost feel like this. I almost feel like they made a national record before the national was making albums. That's fun. <laughs> like, like it kind of yeah. reminds me of almost like Boxer, like five years before Boxer. Like it has that kind of shadowy, dark kind of brooding thing. Like thumbing my way, being just like this beautiful kind of ballad song, or um, like crop duster. Yes, Love but it's Book about Hampton. heartbreak, right? It's like about like terrible, terrible heartbreak. And they really, I don't know, they did a really good job of kind of scaling themselves down in a non-Pearl Jam way, but also sounding like Pearl Jam at the same time. I I don't know, like I feel like this is a record in a way that if you don't like Pearl Jam's 90s albums, this might be a gateway for you into the band. Because almost like in a way that Nebraska for Springsteen, like people who don't, who maybe think that Born in the USA is a little bit too big sounding. Like mm-hmm. you connect to Nebraska because it's a little more kind of, it's stripped down and you can kind of connect with it maybe more on a human level. In a way, I mean, because, I mean, Riot Act obviously isn't an acoustic record, but um, I don't know. To me, it kind of has that feel to it. It's a very intimate record, I think, in a lot yeah, of ways. It's, I think it's probably their least bombastic record. And right. I say bombastic in a very positive way. I love yeah, me too. Big, Sound, I mean, absolutely, but like I agree with you on that. I think the fun thing about Pearl, the you know, super fun thing about Pearl Jam, one of the many, um, is that you know, and and I, you know, I said this before, but like even if you go back to the earliest Pearl Jam stuff, if you were deeply paying attention, which you know nobody sort of was during Ten or versus necessarily like there is weird stuff in there if you are like looking in the cracks of every you know song everything that would give you a hint to everything there not everything but like the vast you know possibilities of where they may or may not take their sound they obviously expanded on that um during no code but no code still has big bombastic stuff i mean of course it does i mean that's not everything on it by the time you know yields certainly embrace the big anthems. I mean, given a fly still gets everybody jumping up and down. Um, but, but when you, when you get to binaural and they're like, well, okay, now we're gonna, there's plenty of those big moments there, but they, you know, they're like, kind of like, uh, we're, we're a little less, we're gonna, you know, take it down a peg and, and, you know, explore some other things. By the time they get to riot act though, I feel like they have like full license of like, we're going to, you know what, we're going to do whatever we want to do Right. <laughs> at this time. Like we're going to make whatever we feel like making. And that's not necessarily going to be, you know, like what's going to like seem like a single. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that they were that concerned about singles for a long time, but at this album is the, like, I don't, this album feels like, like literally we are not worried about anything in the, in the industry. Right. Like, this is about uh, this is about what like we feel like making right now with no concessions to business, and I love that. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's definitely like again like you know this is the beginning of people comparing Pearl Jam to the Grateful Dead, and that's not really a musical comparison. It's more of like how they conducted their career, or how they've conducted it moving forward, and this does seem like a record. Kind of like a Grateful Dead record where, you know, the Grateful Dead, they just went in the studio and they made a record that they wanted to make because they know they could go on the road and people were going to see them. So there's a certain security in that, like, where we know we don't need a radio single in order to sell a tour. You know, like, the fans are there. We can just kind of make a record that we want to make. And honestly, I feel like the, like, general giant public perception of Pearl Jam as, like, a that sort of, 
you know, uh, touring act that is always going to, like, surprise and delight you, like that big, you know, amazing, you know, not necessarily, like, the Grateful Dead comparisons, for example, started at this time started in 2001 when all those bootlegs came out. Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like that reputation, even though, like, they had been a great band, live band for years and years before that, but that's when everybody started knowing about it, it was 2001. And then, you know, Riot Act follows immediately on the heels of all that. I think it took months and months for all those bootlegs to came, come out. They came out in waves. Um, and, and then you are suddenly looking at not that long, you know, a period of, of only about a year, until Riot Act comes out, I think you're right, they made the album they want to make. But they knew when those shows went on sale, and those shows went on sale at the top of 03, January, like, you know, about a year after the last of the 2000 bootlegs came out. But, like, that's, you know, like, people are going to, people are going to buy, people are going to come see us. Like, we have, right. we know our fan base will come see us. The, the people want to see us live. And I think that that's smart, too, because, you know, that tour, interestingly, was in the news a lot more than that album was. Right. Well, and, and I think another thing, too, that should be underscored here is that, you know, when people talk about Pearl Jam, sometimes they couch them in sort of the vein of being a nostalgic 90s band. But when I know I've had a lot of conversations with hardcore Pearl Jam people, and they always swear by the early 2000s albums. Like, you can tell who a real Pearl Jam fan is because. They don't care. Like they'll, not that they'll dismiss ten, but you know, that's never their favorite album. It's it's the albums that came out kind of after they were huge, and then kind of moving forward. Like it, it was definitely people who were invested in the new music. Like they weren't. They didn't want to hear even flow for the fiftieth time. You know, they were very invested there, um, which I think is a thing that's you know like the people that are going to the shows, like the hundred shows or whatever. Like they're really they were invested in the new material. Yeah, and I actually think it, it bears saying that, like, we're invested in, like, sort of the whole... The whole body of know, work. The whole body of work. Not just like, the hits. What, not just the hits, because the other thing that happens during this era, which is, you know, around 2001, 2002, is, like, everybody realizes, oh, my God, every different show is different. Like, <laughs> right. not a little bit different, not, like, eh, kind of different, like, a completely different experience. You never, like, all bets are off. Right. And that's, um, you know, I mean, like, yes, you're going to hear the new music. You're going to hear the old music. You're going to hear your covers you didn't know that they covered. You're going to, who knows? Right. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that'll, that'll make me buy a ticket any day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jessica, it's been great talking to you about this. This is a really interesting conversation. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, thanks for being on. Oh, I, I love it. I love it. It's great. All right. All right. That was Jessica Leckerman talking about Ben Oral and Riot Act and Pearl Jam the Lost Years. And if it's my goal for this series, one of my goals would be to get people to check out these albums because I really think that they are worthwhile. They're, um, they're not perfect. And I would also say that, you know, definitely check out the bootlegs from this time because, you know, again, for me, that was the entry point into these albums, listening to the bootlegs, because the production doesn't always do the songs justice, I think, but hearing them live uh, really puts them over in a powerful way. So that was this episode. 
of Vital Geology. Vital Geology Part 6. We're almost done. One more episode after this. Um, I also want to thank our sponsor for this week's episode. That was Harry's. And again, if you want to try Harry's for free, and I suggest that you do, just go to harrys.com backslash rock. You will get your free trial set. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. It's been fun. We are almost done. We have one more episode to go in Vital Geology. And then we are back to regularly scheduled programming here on Celebration Rock. So, guys, thanks again for listening. We will uh, talk to you later.